This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello. <laughs> Hello, good afternoon and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist, and it's an absolute pleasure for me to introduce John Byrne to you today. In the Book Festival programme, John is described as one of Scotland's great polymaths. He's also one of this, this country's greatest living national treasures, <laughs> a cultural oh, icon, and a Renaissance man. <laughs> A renowned playwright, a brilliantly talented painter and designer of stage sets and record covers, and now a children's writer, John is also the author of the acclaimed Slab Boys trilogy, which now has four parts, by the way, which went from the Traverse here in Edinburgh to Broadway. He's a screenwriter, the creator of, cult, of Tutti Frutti, the, the cult TV series, uh, which made stars of unknowns such as Emma Thompson and Robbie Coltrane playing one uh, big jazzer McGlone, no relation. <laughs> and the, the six-time BAFTA award-winning series is finally available on DVD, folks. <laughs> Yay. John was born in Paisley in 1940, the son of an Irish Catholic family. His childhood, he has said, was happy and interesting. It was also filled <laughs> with drama because his mother became mentally ill after being sexually abused by his father for many years, a fact that John discovered only some several years ago when he embarked on his autobiography. Therefore, his outsider art has been informed by the deep tragedy of his childhood, according to the critic Robert Hewison. In a splendid and lavishly illustrated new biography, John Byrne, Art and Life. John has yet to complete his autobiography, and we will discuss that. It's called weightlifting for beginners. <laughs> but he does come to us today with an enchanting new book, a picture book for children, which is based on bedtime stories he told his twins, Honor and Xavier. Um, and the book is gorgeously, gorgeously illustrated. And you can see some of the original drawings, paintings, and etchings in a wonderful exhibition called Moonlight and Music at the Open Eye Gallery in Edinburgh. With us today, we also have the very fine actor, Robin Lang, who will read an extract from Donald and Benoit, which John and I will then discuss, as well as his life and work. So we also want you to be very much part of that discussion, so there will be time for questions. Finally, may I remind you to switch off all mobile phones, and if you do wish to tweet about the event, can you do so only after the lights go up for the questions? Um, normally, uh, an event lasts 55 minutes. We, were, we started a little late, so we will make up for the time. If you do have to go off um, to do something else, please, please, could you do so quietly? So, ladies and gentlemen, John Byrne and Robin Lang. Donald and Benoit. There once was a boy called Benoit, whose best chum was a cat who thought he was a boy, and they lived together in Fishertown. It all began when Benoit's dad 
Jean Kiki, swapped some coins with the skipper of a passing tramp steamer for a wee scrawny kitten with big googly eyes. When Jean Kiki brought him home, Benoit christened the little chap Donald. Before you could say ABC, Donald made, it, made himself at home in his fish box bed while Benoit taught him how to read, count to nine, and enjoy a hearty breakfast of French toast and black pudding. Life was pretty rosy for the new best chums. Once Donald was kitted out in an old pair of Benoit's boxing trunks and baby booties, they lost no time in exploring Benoit's favourite Fishertown haunts, the John Dory Public Library on Squid Row, the Electric Eel Cinema at the far end of the pier, and the Dark Night of the Lemon Soul Cafe, <laughs> right next door to their house. Now, it came to pass that Jean Kiki had saved enough money to buy a beat-up old fishing smack, the Mystic Isle, from Bucky Mackay. Bucky Mackay hadn't caught a fish in years. So he gave up the sea to open the dark night of the Lemon Soul Cafe and manage Fishertown's premier stage act, the Dancing Devil Dogs. Bucky Mackay wasn't the only one in Fishertown to seek out other fishless pursuits. Donald, although born a cat, had never so much as clapped an eye on a fish, much less eaten one. Black pudding was much more his cup of tea. Nevertheless, he was looking forward with great excitement to his first fishing trip with Benoit and Benoit's dad aboard the Mystic Isle. Imagine what a disappointment it was for the trio when they discovered that there was not a single fish to be had in the seas surrounding Fishertown. Not a haddock, nor a flounder, nor a sprat to catch a mackerel. Small wonder that Bucky Mackay had forsaken the briny in favour of dry land. There was nothing for Jean Kiki to do but leave Bucky Mackay in charge of Donald and Benoit while he set off for the distant waters of Finisterre in search of a sizable catch. Bucky Mackay was none too pleased to find himself taking care of a beanpole of a boy and an overweight pussycat, but he reckoned that he owned Jean Kiki a favour. Benoit brushed aside a tear as he and Donald waved the mystic isle off from the harbour. He realised that his dad had to go off and earn the money to keep a roof over their heads. Donald curled his tail around Benoit's trousers and slipped a paw into his best chum's hand. Benoit drew Donald close. How were they going to manage with Jean Kiki away? Au revoir, Papa. Good luck. Bonne chance. The boy and the cat stood looking out to sea until the little fishing boat with her gallant skipper at the helm disappeared over the horizon. Thank you, Robin. Um, Robin has to leave us because he's got to be on stage. He is appearing in David Leddy's play, Untitled Love Story, and um, you can see it at St. George's West. Thank you, Robin. John, I mentioned in the introduction that you wrote uh, these stories for Honor and Xavier, the twins you have. Well, with I, did, I didn't actually write them because I just told them bedtime stories. Uh -huh. 
and uh, there was a visitor came to the house. This is this was about uh, I think they were about eight at the time, and uh, the twins, boy and girl twins. These are my young, two younger children, a bit two older children, and uh, every night they had to have a story. So it always took the, the same form. It was Benoit was looking after uh, Donald in Fishertown, and a Saturday would come around and. Uh, uh, Benoit would say to Donald, as he was frying up the, the black pudding in the frying pan, and he would say, now, there's a few people coming to, a few visitors coming to Fishertown today, there's an Egyptologist, you know, maybe, and a guy who makes robots, and uh, a pilot. And uh, the thing they would say, oh, I'll go for the Egyptologist, I think. <laughs> uh, Benoit, so they had uh, sort of, and then he would say, what is an Egyptologist? So he would, um, Benoit would explain what an Egyptologist was. And he ended up being, uh, Donald, the cat, ended up being mummified in the, and left over the weekend in the museum in Fishertown. But he escaped eventually. But it was that kind of thing. He had to, I had to find out an organically satisfying ending to every story. So I must have told him about 600 versions of this, different versions of it, because Xavier would immediately fall asleep and Honor had to wait goggle-eyed like Donald uh, until it finished. So I couldn't, there was no, I, there was no, and they lived happily ever after, nonsense. And then he, anyway, a, a visitor came to the house and overheard me telling him at bedtime and said to Tilda, uh, why, do, why doesn't he publish these? That had never occurred to me, honestly hadn't. You know how, you listen to writers when you're uh, a bit younger than I am now, and they say, and the characters took over. I never believe that until I started doing 23 or, or plays or whatever, and they really do take over. It's true. Yeah. Anyway, it came about, uh, there was a slight delay in uh, finding a publisher, and uh, eventually found one in New York, and uh, eventually came out, and I got my advance, like, Two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it was worth it. <laughs> I literally was worth it because I would have done it for nothing, you know. Did, no, he's not here, is he? <laughs> <laughs> John, you'd been you'd been telling the stories to the children, but um, when did you start to visualise Donald and Benoit? Because oh, Benoit looks uncannily like, well, I mean, he's got ginger hair and so on, but um, he dresses like a wee matelot. And uh -huh. you have been known to dress yourself like a matelot. Uh, uh, accidentally, you know, <laughs> you know, accidentally the matelot. Uh, Maybe that's the title of the autobiography, huh? The accidental matelot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 no, I never, and, and Jackie mentioned an autobiography which I've never written. Uh, I think I started, it was called... Well, we, uh, did a, we actually did a book festival session about this bi autobiography which did not exist. Eventually did it in pictures, but and it was going to be Jamie Bing that did it uh, for Carnegie. And they said, could you write some text for it? And I went, no, why? Why would I write text? Uh, the drawings were self-explanatory. I didn't want to do, didn't want to tell him anything, <laughs> really. You know, even though I'd spilled the beans to Jackie. You know, I think once you've uh, so many 
people say they're going to make a film or going to write a book, and then they tell you all about it, and of course it never appears because they've let the cat out of the bag. Unfortunately, I didn't do that with us. But can we go back to the, the Donald and Benoit and when you started uh -huh. to visualise them? Uh, I think we went on a holiday to France. We were going to uh, find uh, the little town. In fact, I, I, I tracked it down where Monsieur Hula's holiday was made. saint marc sur mer which is in uh, either Brittany or Normandy, I couldn't tell you. It's, it's, anyway, uh, I arranged it all as a surprise and I, I booked uh, tickets to, plane tickets to Bordeaux. I should have been a travel agent. <laughs> and then we, I went to hire a van from uh, <laughs> Bordeaux. And I said, we were arriving about uh, 10 o'clock. I guess it's some oh, I don't know, many kilometres of the way. It's like, it's a couple of hundred miles from, <laughs> from San Marc sur Mer. So I was driving about 150 kilometres an hour just trying to get us there. And uh, eventually it did, and it was delightful. And that's where the the sort of idea, because they, they bought, uh, the children, we ones were about, oh God, they were about three or four, and we bought them a comic one day, uh, and there was, there was a, wee, a wee boy in it uh, who wore a sort of school cap called Benoit, I liked the name, and it was Benoit, the strongest boy in the world, in French. And uh, so I, got, I took the name, I thieved the name from uh, that comic, but it was a, comic, a pictured comic book and uh, made him a different guy altogether, slightly older. So did you, did you then paint them, the, the, how they looked? Uh, paintings of them? No, not initially I, I didn't know, but I knew what they looked like. Uh -huh. I knew exactly uh -huh. what they looked like. No, and then everybody went off to, a few years later, everybody went off to uh, Oregon. Was it Oregon? I Portland to make a film this was I said, I think they went behind. with their mother, Tilda Swinton, to, Aye, to make a film. Uh, and they all went off and I stayed behind and I did uh, ten big drawings, ten portrait drawings of people. I made them six, sit for hours and hours and hours and, and also did the book. But that was the only version one of the book, you know, and it went through four versions. So like four or five years later it was ready. And then I wasted another. So it, it's a, a long time in coming out, but it's worth it in the end. You say, John, in the beginning there have been four versions of the book. Is that also because you have an American publisher? Well, in a, I suppose in Did a way... Did they want to rewrite thing, you to rewrite things? Not that much. I did, I did cut out the, the double dogs. They don't like smoking, for instance. Smoking. They were, they were all smokers. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, what they used to do, they were, they were about this height, you know, all the double dogs. One, one foot four. And... Uh, uh, before they started dancing, they would they one, they'd go and shoplift a miniature of bells from the licensed grocer. <laughs> they'd all have a nip of the miniature. And then they started, you know, and you can't hear devil dogs drinking or smoking <laughs> in America. And you can't say stuff like blood. Uh, one of the devil dogs has got distemper, so he's down, one man down. And so that's why, oh no, I'm going to spoil it for you. No, but there's a, there's a vacancy for a, a dancing devil dog. There's 18 dancing devil dogs. The left is 17 because the story, I think, is against the stemper. And this is fit to dance. And they're going to be dancing at the Electric Hill Cinema. Oh God, what was I going to tell you about then? Um, uh, oh God. 
Well, Who did you ask me, Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a convoluted, it was such a convoluted tale. I asked you Rosalind. how the Americans were about certain well, aspects yeah, right. of so political correctness. So they have an advert saying uh, that the devil dogs are, are looking for fresh, fresh blood to join the troop. And you can't say you have to go fresh talent. <laughs> Not the same, fresh blood. That's a, that's a well-known Fraser saying. Which brings me round to, no, I won't, I won't go on about it. But anyway, uh, yeah, I had to uh, sort of massage bits of it. But they were so nice, they were such a nice uh, publishers. <laughs> and so keen to do it. It's much shorter than the normal story that would be told to the, uh, my younger children then. And uh, it's still a good read. Um, how, do they, how do they feel about their story being out there? Because in a way you've stolen their story from I them, haven't it. you? I stole their, 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 <laughs> their life savings, I've stolen it in the past. <laughs> but uh, no, initially they went, oh, they couldn't quite understand it because they were still, they were about 10. Mm -hmm. And uh, they couldn't quite grasp that. And, uh, then, but I saw them the other day and they're so delighted that, that they have, uh, they're sharing it with, the entire world. Well. Now, is this going to be a series? Well, the, the publishers, the two publisher, the two publishing guys, uh, Anthony and uh, Rob, were saying, and and in the next uh, uh, book, I mean, what next book? So they they think they're, you know, and and Rob, who is a children's editor, and Anthony runs the, the whole thing in uh, New York, the whole uh, office in New York. And Rob said to me one day, do you think the Americans will, will call him Benoit? <laughs> I said, possibly. <laughs> so uh, I think in America it's Donald Benoit, you know. It's, it's quite a thing, isn't it, to become um, a first-time children's author, if you'll forgive me, at the age of 71. 102. <laughs> oh, correction, 102. But, it's oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's all, uh, things happen when you get older. Mm -hmm. It's even better than uh, getting them younger, that would spoil you, uh, totally. I'm so glad uh, that uh, it's been published now rather than, you know, when I was 25 or 30 or 40 or whatever. Because that's when you first wanted to write a children's book, wasn't when it? When I was you left I Glasgow School of Art? Was 19, I think I was 19 when I thought, oh God, I'd love to write a children's book. <laughs> Sometimes walking along uh, Sucky Hall Street, I think it was. I have to mention it to somebody and they just kept walking. <laughs> But, so it's, it's nicer if you uh, have to wait a while. Were there more. any bedtime stories in your childhood? Uh, Which I've already referred to I a little. Okay, there were some bed, bedtime dramas, but <laughs> um, stories, I don't think there were stories as such, but there, was, there were stories, there were plenty of stories when we used to go out to my grandmother's uh, in Cardonald, she lives in Cardonald, and uh, her and my uh, grandfather, the McShanes, uh, had to elope from Ireland because my grandmother was 16 and you couldn't get married in Ireland at that time when you were 16, but so they came to Scotland. They were forced to come to Scotland. And uh, there was always stories going down. Uh, there was Monk Ohlone, he was also from Ireland, and his son, young Oney. <laughs> and uh, my uncle Pat was a bookie, uh, who was my mother's brother, in Govan. And uh, he was a great storyteller. And he was in the RAF during the war uh, in Burma. And he used to write me letters 
I used to write, well, I would write my mother letters, you know, like sort of cablegrams, and there were little cartoons in them. And uh, I thought, God, what a brilliant drawer he is, my Uncle Pat, it's just totally brilliant. And it was <laughs> years later, I discovered you could uh, buy these ready made. The cartoons were on in blank paper. <laughs> <laughs> but he never let on that it wasn't him. <laughs> so I got a talent, my talent from Uncle Pat, it's okay. The drawing talent. I referred to the, the drama of your childhood. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because you, it, it, your mother was quite ill. Uh, well, she was, but I mean, that was. I used to, uh, when she was, they used to, used to get the old uh, Dr. Cryan, who was the family doctor, to come over. They had to rouse him. I had to get the police to rouse him from his bed. And uh, he'd come sort of drugged up to the eyeballs. And then uh, eventually give my mother an injection. So she was taken into the psychiatric hospital as a voluntary patient. <laughs> Unconscious. <laughs> a voluntary patient. No, obviously. It was pretty hellish for her, her. and uh, of course, uh, I went through periods of thinking this is just wonderful in one way. One part of my brain was thinking, "Oh God, this is this is," without thinking I'm going to turn anything into a play at all. Mm -hmm. It was just very dramatic, you know, because you would get the police coming, and she would run in, out in the street. I remember one time she put her fist through. A neighbour was looking out her scullery window like that. And she hated, she never let on she hated this woman until she ran up the street uh, and had night clothes and put her, saw the woman at her window and went <laughs> and punched her right through the window, broke and cut all her arms off. So if that wasn't dramatic, I don't know what it was. But there's all sorts of things going on. Um, so everyone knows that drama. But you always knew, strange thing was you'd come home from school and there'd be a bird got into the house bird had come down, the flown down the chimney or whatever. There were no birds in Fergusley Park. I promise you, you never ever saw a bird. And there was like a harbinger of doom and he just went, oh, there's a certain atmosphere. And he knew there was going to be a, a period of uh, psychosis or whatever it was. And uh, on a death certificate it said, dementia precox, which would made filthy and Phil McCann and Slab Boy say, when he was at his mother's grave, say, ah, it was dementia uh, precox and top of the flu. <laughs> Do you think that, that all of this drama that surrounded you, you said you, you're kind of watching it and thinking that's interesting. It well, was, I, you know, it I, was I reveled in the fact that it was dramatic. I didn't, mm -hmm. I hated it. Mm -hmm. The things you're forced to put up with or in a situation that I would never, now, now you would think, if you had a choice, you didn't have any choice. You know, if I had a choice, I would have, they would have shown me around Fergus with the partner, would have said, don't think so, I think I'll maybe go to uh, Ralston or somewhere. And I don't know if you know Paisley at all, but Ralston was a posh end and Fergus Park was a, the undesirables. They're not getting, going to get in from the posh end at all. That's, that's with all the drama and all the stuff and all the material that you're, you're ever going to need uh, is. And the same thing with going to school and we're all, uh, the twins go to a Steiner school in Forest and I went to St. Martin's Academy and uh, uh, Renfrew, because it was the only secondary school in Paisley, there was a Catholic, the whole of Renfrewshire, a Catholic secondary school and there was junior secondary and senior secondary. 
And these guys are, you know, you saw guys of 14 wearing men's suits, double-breasted suits and stuff. And uh, been told, I think uh, there was one was uh, shot dead in a brothel in uh, Leopoldville, guy in our class. Another one was in the street battle in Blackpool. And this is many years ago. And we shot in the, his face, head blown off with a double-barrel shotgun, Wally Vesey. I mean, it's just... That, that school you wouldn't have wanted to send your children to, you know, unless you wanted to be grow up as an artist of some description. <laughs> <laughs> and there was always something in box where you're, I'm seeing the heads, there wasn't a head in front of it, there was those palings, you know, and always, oh, it, was, it was a never ending enjoyment, it was thrilling in it, it really was. And that's where all the talent's coming from. All these uh, housing schemes and stuff, the real talent. You've said, uh, we, uh, we've already established, John, you won't write the memoir, but it strikes me that in many ways you've made the memoir, haven't you? Because mm. one of your endless subjects is yourself Absolutely. and the many self-portraits you've painted of yourself in yeah. one incarnation after another. W would you agree with that? that yeah, because, I mean, I mean people say... I, I, you see so many comments, if you look at this thing, if you're curious enough or stupid enough to look in a, uh, a visitor's book at a gallery, I have a show on this, is, oh, you're very fond of yourself. <laughs> they, think, they, think, they think it's that you actually like yourself all the time, you're going to paint yourself. I mean, if you've got a model for uh, looking into anything to do with the human race, I look at myself. I mean, I don't know MD that well and I don't even know myself, so hardly going to be painting other people if I do why we're here. It's a constant question, actually. Uh, answer that unanswerable question. You know, what are we doing here? <laughs> so I'll let you think that for a pause and, and uh, think about that for a few <laughs> seconds, you know. Why are we here? No, anyway, it's an endless... Was there a moment when you knew you were going to be an artist? Did I you? knew right from the, the off. I didn't even need to think about it. I, was uh -huh. a, I already was an artist. And my mother swears I was drawn in the pram. You know, I was in the pram, I was 19, mind you. But <laughs> 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 Though you never thought I'm going to be an artist, because uh, it was only when the insurance man came to collect the insurance that he put my mother right about getting a degree called a Master of Arts. She thought that was a master of drawing, you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, and what about the writing? I mean, your first play, Writer's Cramp, was about 1977, wasn't it, on the Fringe? 1977 uh -huh. Fringe, uh -huh. yeah. Because uh -huh. there was always going on to powers about, let's do something at the Fringe, but it wasn't all these comedians, you know. <laughs> we were the, they should send all the comics to Blackpool, somewhere suitable. <laughs> you, hear, you hear now in the wireless and it says, and we'll be going over to the Fringe, so we have stand-up comic. And you go, when did that happen? I know exactly when that happened. It was 1980 when... Anyway, I won't go on about then, but that's the time when you could do a play at the Fringe and uh, for no well, for nothing in the sense that uh, you borrowed stuff and, and beg borrowed or steal and uh, hand uh, roneoed uh, posters and all that, flyers and stuff and did it for nothing, did it for the love of it. And that was the spirit of the Fringe then. Big business now. Yeah. Anyway, that was... But I used to, uh, as one does with uh, school pals or your, your pals, and you get a, 
I don't know how many times I've heard this about uh, people getting tape recorders, you know, a Grundig reel-to-reel tape recorder and interviewing each other. It just made yourself roll on the floor with laughter. It's wonderful. Yeah. My brother eventually sold the tape recorder because he was a great one for clothes. He never had any money. Did it seem a logical step to write a play? Do you know what I mean? Or did you just I don't know. feel, I I just feel you secret. wanted to write, to write something? And it's, it's a very, very funny play. Uh, it's, it was very enjoyable to write, but I never let on I was writing, you know. Uh, I'd done the sets and cautions for a, a show called The Great Northern Welly Boot Show. And uh, then Tom Buchan, uh, who wrote it in, in collaboration with Billy Connolly, and Tom Buchan said, would, would you write a wee bit for the show? And I said, yeah, I will. And I wrote the... Uh, it was a, a kind of parody of the, this, the working at Govan Shipyards and uh, I did a, what was, uh, they were making uh, welly boots and uh, instead of boats, building boats and I wrote the, the welly workers prayer which was based on the, uh, the Our Father. Anyway, that was my first trip into the theatre but I caught the bug. I caught the bug several years earlier uh, by going to see uh, Alan Bennett's 40 years on at the Apollo Theatre in, uh, in the 1960s, 67, I think. And 10 years later, I produced a play because I'm a very slow learner. <laughs> it took 10 years for the penny to drop that I could uh, do that wonderful thing. It's like having a, an entire or, uh, audience going up as one, you know, one, and laughing at something that one had written. I mentioned Tutti Frutti, and of course there was your, your cheating heart. And we all long for another John Byrne TV series, but I don't suppose it will happen, will it? Given the way TV is now. No, it will never, never ever happen again. I mean, uh, <coughs> you're right something that's <coughs> successful in its own rights, and then you never get asked to do it more. <laughs> that's, you know, that's a, it's a British way. Yeah. Would you, would you like to write another series? No. <laughs> 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 but do you, John, you paint, you work every single day? Every, don't every you? day, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's not like work at all. If, if I'm not working, it's hard work, not to work. I mean, what do you do all day? I guess, oh, for God's sake. There's young guys walking about with crutches <laughs> everywhere you go, every village and town, small town in the whole of Scotland. There's young men. Uh, claiming disability allowance and, and there's nothing up with them, you know, and just standing out po outside pubs and uh, God, what a life! I was a life sentence. I'd rather work at anything. I'd rather heave coal and be doing that. And I've got some I love to, a couple of a number of things that I love to do. Uh, one of which is paint, one of which is, the other of which is writing plays, and I do, do that every day, from morning to night. You, you yeah. told me recently that um, you never know what you're going to do when you you look at that blank sheet of paper or that blank canvas. Nothing. I, I had no clue what I was going to do. I sat there for hours and hours going, I have an idea in my head for this, the current show that's on. I thought, oh my God, it's a disaster. But, and then I remembered I've gone through that every time I've had a, a show or every time I've gone to uh, sort of writing some. And you just, you get, you're given a deadline, and I've never missed a deadline. 
you know, which is a great thing to have. You know, people talk about the freedom. Wouldn't you love the freedom? No, no, you just sort of Because there's some 80 good. images in the show, aren't there? There's which? About 80 in the images in the show. There must be about yeah, that, yeah. you know. But that was started in around about May, I think. Some and of course, there are a lot of the originals from Donald and Benoit. Yeah, uh-huh. That's because I was, uh, I thought I wouldn't have enough things in the cave. They arrived in a box from, uh, back from America. And uh, I never opened the box until I, I sort of got slightly jippy about the, the show in, here in Edinburgh. And opened it up and gave Tom Wilson, who runs the gallery, the images from Donald Venner. Uh, and there are a few of them on the wall there. I'm going to ask you one last slightly difficult question before we go to the audience. Um, your private life has, uh, in the last few years, ended up all over tabloid newspapers. And I'm not going to say how was that, because it's obviously horrible. Um, it, it must have been very, very upsetting to have a version of your life out there that is it's nothing a, like the truth, because I know that, having talked a, to you. It's a version, I promise you, it's a version. And it's the wrong, entirely the wrong version, need I say that, but anyway, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, I'm glad that rag went down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It was always that. It was ever since I can remember, the news of the world was just shameful. It really was. I mean, it was very entertaining because it was always about vicars and stuff like that. My father used to get the news of the world. He, he swore he got it for the crossword. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Anyway, enough said of it there. Well, it, it, reduces, there. it reduces your, your life to the version of a cartoon almost, doesn't it? Yes, but you like cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure you've got lots of questions because um, we will put the lights up. We can bring a microphone to you, so please just wave and we'll come to you. Gentlemen here, please. Simple question. Why was the fabulous Tutti Frutti never repeated? Uh, well, it was repeated on BBC Two. It went out on BBC One on a Tuesday night, which was the graveyard slot. And uh, then they repeated it on uh, BBC Two. And uh, that was it. And then uh, the reason it was 22 years before it came out on DVD, one explanation was that they lost the paperwork. <laughs> Which wouldn't surprise me. But funnily enough, it coincided with the copyright of the song Tutti Frutti uh, running out of its 50-year copyright. And I had altered the words of, uh, and they were charging the writers, two writers, uh, uh, and it was, I think it was $5,000 for the first screen because I'd changed the word, and there's meant to be a, somebody that checks that kind of thing. I didn't, didn't, didn't. I thought it was quite a compliment change the word uh, at the end of episode one. And uh, then with a repeat on BBC Two, they asked for $10,000. So it was going to go up and up and up because, and it would have been so easy to do re-voice the words that Robbie Coltrane sang in the club when Susie appears. She makes me sleep in the tub. Here's the rub. 
you know, that version of 283. That's the only reason I can think that it coincided with uh, the release of the DVD. But as I say, if you have any success, there's always somebody who just... <laughs> which I could, as I about to say, I could care less. Meaning, I couldn't care less, you know. I actually see that I, I could care less now and think that means, makes any sense. <laughs> it's absolutely the opposite. I could care less. I couldn't care less, no. <laughs> Funny people, but we love them nevertheless. <laughs> Anyone else? Please just wave at us. There's a gentleman here. Oh, I'm yeah. so stunned by the yeah. cheek of all words. <laughs> Don't really ask me anything. Uh, recently, they, they, uh, on Radio Scotland, they replayed an interview with the late, much-missed Jerry Rafferty when he said that, uh, coming from an Irish Catholic background in Paisley, that he'd always felt an outsider. And I think I'm right in saying that he quoted you and Billy Connolly as feeling the same way. I just wondered, A, if you could comment on this rather sad reflection, and B, if you think that progress is being made to integrate. Oh, I wasn't, it wasn't because of any, I never, I never came across any, any prejudice, any uh, sectarianism at all, ever. Never. It wasn't that, it was the fact that you came from somebody else and you, your grandparents, if not people's mothers and fathers, had come over from Ireland. And you just felt you didn't fit in. Mind you, you were always asked uh, uh, when you went for a job, Ah, and which school did you go to? And if it was a saint's name, they were, <laughs> you know, that was always a story anyway, but I never ever came across any, ever, never. And we lived in a, a place where it was, uh, one of the old Catholics by any means, you know. I do remember the Orange Walk passing when I had a, had a studio in East Campbell Street in Glasgow, and I, I'd forgotten the date and I come down the hill to go, Across the road, and the only walk was passing, and there was a guy with a club, and he went, oh, I know your face. <laughs> I know you. And stopped and was marching in time as they all marching past. I know you, you are. <laughs> and he was being quite civil, I think. You know, I'm, I'm sure he was being quite civil. But uh, I just felt an outsider because there was, there was one black guy in the, the whole of Ferguson Park called Percy. He used to drink in the pub, and he was a great favourite, and he was a very nice chap. He was a labourer, funny enough, he was a labourer, he worked beside my father. Uh, but otherwise, we were, we were the outsiders. We didn't want to take all the, the glory of being an outsider, a, 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 a visible, very marked and visible outsider. We were outsiders. We liked that that way, you know. Um, over here, please. Which is your greater passion, your art or your writing? Oh, it's so difficult to say because my great passion is uh, uh, both of them. I'm, I'm, whatever one I'm doing is my great passion of that. And there's only two. I, I go between the two. So I don't. When I'm writing, I'm writing and just I'm, and totally involved with these characters that are, are running around inside my head and, and uh, seeing me painting with it. Just. Oh. Impossible to say, but the writing came much later, obviously, than uh, the paint, which I was doing in my pram, as I, as I told you earlier. 
know, straightforward, whatever that one is at the time. Again, you, you, you like the odd commission, you know, you know 30, 30 years, 30 odd years goes past and you never. <laughs> I just, funny enough, uh, I was just looking at the, we went to see a wonderful, uh, it's a one-man show dance space, it's called Silent. And there's a guy called, an Irish guy, uh, Pat Kinnevin. Yeah. And it's totally wonderful. And it's, Irish people use the English language, the masters of the English language. And uh, all we get here is, is it in the old Scotch language? And you go, no. It's in modern, present day. I write in present day. My present day, uh, Ferguson Park, Paisley's. Uh, oh, Scottish, I can't even understand a word of it. Lalan's an invented language. So it's alien to me. But, uh, and there are so many independent producers, theatre producers, I've got a wee uh, notebook that's in my bag somewhere. There are pages upon pages of independent theatre producers in Ireland. We have not one in Scotland that I can think of. Not one. And they do plays for New York, they do plays for London, they do plays for... Uh, when did you last see a Scottish play in the West End? Like, never? Yeah. Irish plays? Lots. And I think that's possibly because uh, they love their artists in uh, Ireland and we don't love them quite so much here. I, I mean, you all love reading books and everything. We all love reading books and we... But we're in the minority, believe you me. I hope in the new Scotland, you know, which is coming up soon, <laughs> Uh, they'll, they'll change their tune a wee bit because there's lots and lots of uh, huge amount of talent in this country and it's just not used, not encouraged quite enough. We need more theatres, we need more passionate producing and we need more recognition of talent that's coming up and I think that's going to happen because there's been a, a bit of a lull. I mean, it's come out in other ways, certainly. It's come out in music where you can, you know, it goes the world over. And there's huge talent here, but I wish there were more small theatres. I really, really do. And not a, a monopoly. You'll get the, the Traverse and you'll get the National Theatre of Scotland. One's enormous and the other one's quite small. And uh, it'd be good to get a break now and again. Are you working on a play? Yeah, but it's not getting anywhere to go. I've worked in several, I've worked in a couple of musicals, book for musicals, and uh, another two, and one of which is a, an hour-long version of uh, uh, Writer's Cramp for Lennox Love, who have a book festival, and Alison Moffat at Melrose asked me if I would do it with the original cast, and the original cast have said yes. So that's in November. That is, it was on in 1977. Uh, For those done, who didn't see it, John, tell them who was in the original cast. Uh, Billy Patterson, John Bett and Alex Norton. And they were just totally brilliant. They were wonderful. And uh, we, we were at the 1977 fr uh, Fringe in a, a back room 
of a place called Carlton Studios, which John Beck's future brother-in-law, Steve Clark Hall, was a, had just bought, so it was just an empty room. And we borrowed the chairs from the park department. <laughs> and somebody made us, and a bed from somebody, somebody brought in a bed from their flat. And uh, I think a couple of lights were stolen from somewhere. And it was 50 pence to get in. And we were mobbed every night. And, and Alistair Moffat, who was running the fringe at the time, said, oh, maybe get about 20 people. So the fire people didn't come and, and, and inspect us. We were stowed out. If it had there been a fire, I, hate, I dread to think, but it was stowed out, yeah, every night. There was a lady over here, please. Um, I just wondered whether um, you had any plans to do any more theatre design or whether you're planning to design the set for Writer's Cramp when it's restaged. Uh, it's nice if somebody asked me to design a set, you know. I mean, it really would. I mean, it's not like I'm saying, no, no, I've not got time to design a designer. Don't get asked. But I'll do, it'll be a very uh, spare set for Writer's Cramp, yeah, when we do it in November, yeah. I would love to do something, I think the last one I was commissioned to do was a Scottish opera, which now must be oh, 27 years ago, something like that, 30 years ago. They need to re-employ you. No, we need to have a concerted campaign to get the National Theatre of Scotland to commission you then. Well, well, it did take up the duty-free stage because uh, Eddie Jackson had suggested the news anonymously in the newspapers that they should do a live show. But it didn't go. It went right. It was that His Majesty. This is not a complaint. This is factual. His Majesty in Aberdeen came to Edinburgh. Did it go to Glasgow that time? I don't know. Glasgow, John. It did come. I know it did go to Glasgow. It went to the Kings, and then it came back to the Kings in Edinburgh, and then it was gone. I think that was the thing, like seventeen performances or something, you know. I have a lady in the front here, please. I know this is maybe a silly question, but I wondered what happened to Gridiron. Does that still exist? I think they're still, they're still very much in the go, but they have to find uh, venues that, that suit them. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think they have a permanent theatre, right? right yeah. No, they're going strong. They have a production on on the fringe. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, the small company's still going, you know, about the place, but we could do the small theatres to go along with the small companies, and they should have a base of some kind, you know, I think. No, I was comparing what's happening in Scotland. There's lots and lots of stuff happening here, but it's, in Ireland, it's celebrated that they're happening. The, the, Minister, the Ministry of Culture is not the gulag you get sent to if you've blotted your copybook in government. <laughs> I swear to God it isn't, you know, that they, that they go, oh, wonderful. And there's about five or six of them, and then there's all these independent producers, as I say, you know, so it's, uh, we could learn quite a lot from the Irish and their uh, love of the theatre and the love of literature. 
have a lady here, please. You referred to the number of young people who are standing about aimlessly outside pubs. Do you have any thoughts about how their energy can be utilised, how we can break this cycle? Uh, I mean, I, I, well, I, I think a bit of encouragement, certainly, but there are other, other lots of young people doing stuff uh, that's happening you know, in bedrooms and, and it's usually uh, writing songs or, or doing stuff and, and they can make films on their laptops. There's lots of people doing stuff uh, and we should have outlets for all that stuff. That's the thing, you come up against a bit of a brick wall because we have less independent uh, sources of fun things, you know, when, when they're uh, delivered to you and so much slips through your fingers because we don't have the facility. They have to go elsewhere, uh, and very often because of the lack of uh, encouragement, they think they have to go to London or uh, America or whatever. Not always the case. It's actually improved since my day, but can do further improvement. Did you get encouraged when you? I, were get, I get encouraged by my parents, and I'm sure. The parents do still encourage their, their eye, yeah. And just more or less rolled the roost into the bargain. And my, my parents were not well read or, you know. Uh, we got a lot of uh, newspapers and uh, periodicals now. I counted, I counted them up, totaled them up, 27 newspapers and periodicals every week. So we read everything. We read uh, my mother's uh, women's magazines as well. You have to read everything. And if you read everything, you're going to be, uh, you're going to get yourself an education and realize the world is bigger than the one you live in. But you have to write with the world you live in as opposed to the. We now have a, a slight, my heart sinks when uh, things, you know, some of this advertised as, well, I don't know if they advertise, but you know what it's about because you've read a, a preview. Uh, the story of every man, you know, who don't really have a name and, or a time or any in particular. It's uh, supposedly universal. You've got no chance. I mean, in the particular is a universal. Do you want to see somebody's story? That's what, why this guy, he talks, he, he talks about, he gives himself the character of a fictional name and he talks about his brother and they're gay and they come from Cork and they get terrorised and the brother ends up in chunks having laid in front of a train. It's full of drama, it's full of the most wonderful language and you've got to see it. It's something I haven't seen for years that you feel impassioned about. The other play, that's an Irish play, right, written by, it's totally assimilable. We all understand it. And the other one was written by a guy who was uh, overspill to the West Country called uh, Jerusalem. And that was phenomenal. That was three hours, 20 minutes of the best entertainment you'll ever see in your life. It started off at the Royal Court, a guy called Jez Butterworth. And it's about the heart of England. Now I'm no English, but Bloody hell, it was a wonderful play, and Silent was a wonderful play. And I'm trying to think of a wonderful thing. Like, so we saw Caledonia, 
uh, last year's festival, and we did not go in for the second half because it was total crap. And that was our national theatre. So I hate to see it. I wish I could say, and it was wonderful. But if you get a, a writer of satirical sketches for Radio 4 to write a play and you think you're going to do an epic, you have another thing coming. They really do. It was just very, very, I can only say, as we say, disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you come out of silent and your heart's roaring. You come out of Jerusalem and your heart just sings to the heavens. I, I want to come out of it. You came out of Black Watch doing the same, joyful, and full, even though that was a subject matter, you just come out, you were thrilled in bits and you were a standing ovation. Mm, I, I, enough said. Jerusalem yeah. is going to be um, opening again in London in the West End with Mark Rylance again. Well, that doesn't surprise me. It does not surprise part me. Part of it was surely the performance of the actor as well. He was fantastic. Oh, God, he was, he, he was yeah. totally, absolutely wonderful, Mark Rylance. And you're just on your feet. That entire audience was on their feet. And he, he took 12 curtain calls. He's phenomenal. Phenomenal. So one, one the whole play is great. You, you can only be phenomenal in a great play. John, uh, when you see a performance like Pat Kinnevin's in Silent, did, uh, the way he looks is amazing, as yeah, well as anything uh, else. Does that make you want to go away and draw him or paint him? No, I'd just like to meet him and see how much we enjoyed his play. You know, it's just, it was totally wonderful. It just makes you... Uh, you, you don't want to give it up, which you never would anyway. You just, you just kind of... They just keep going, but... Uh, it's great when you see some great... Uh, uh, gives you faith again, you know. It's like a miracle. It's like a minor miracle. It really is. It's like going to lure to someone. We could take one last question, please. I know it's very intentional. I'm going to predict that eventually someday you will write your own life story, or somebody else will, and it'll be made into a play or a film. And I'll add, give the who should play John Byrne. <laughs> 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 you probably have to dig me up for that one. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. It just brought my death closer. <laughs> um, I'm afraid we're run out of time. No, that's fine. That was very short. That was very, very short. <laughs> Really was. I promise you, we've been here all the time, yeah. John. And um, I think the one thing we can honestly say is John Byrne never disappoints. <laughs>